Welcome to the Felony Femme Podcast, hosted by Cherokee Taylor and Natasha Mason. A true crime podcast about murder and true crime and conspiracy and mysteries and other things. And we do so much research, but we actually don't know shit. Uh, yeah. We gotta redo that. So all of these are from Cali, right? Yes. Okay. We're so, doing a set of three, all from California. Yeah, because I'm going to California in a couple of days. Yes. Jealous, because it's like shitty, shitty weather outside. <laughs> that was the goal. Like, I was like, if we do it in January, then hopefully mm-hmm. COVID will be over, which didn't happen, but we're still going to go. <laughs> yeah. And then, I mean, the weather's going to be Way horrible, better. so... Might as well go to California where it'll be a lot better. Hell yeah. It's like like mid-60s, I think. Oh my God, that's a dream. Oh I'm going to go on so many hikes. I like, Ooh. ugh, that's like something that I, um, I like kind of want to move somewhere slightly warmer or at least somewhere where the winters are more moderate. So then we can like go on hikes all year mm-hmm. round and like go do shit outside and not be... Stuck inside twenty four seven. Yeah, yeah. I'm literally stuck in my living room under a blanket for at least four months every uh, year. Yeah. Dude, okay, I got this blanket. It's a king sized, like softy blanket that I got from TJ Maxx. Oh, why is that so soft? I literally know. It is amazing because I have my little like writing weekend mm-hmm. and. I was, like, having a weird day. So I was like, I'm going to go spend some gift card money. <laughs> there you go. Fucking amazing. Honestly, it feels like, like, so like it's not, like, the soft stuff that'll catch your dry skin, which is, like, the worst because <laughs> it's wintertime. So, of course, I have dry skin. Mm-hmm. I know. And then you feel bad about yourself because you're like, oh, my nasty, dry, cracked <laughs> skin's catching on my blanket. <laughs> I know. This one's, like, okay. And then I shaved my legs. And then I like cuddled in my blanket with my shaved legs and it was so nice. <laughs> yeah. It's like fresh sheets and shaved legs. Yeah. It you is. just feel like far more put together than you actually are. Hell yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I'm going first this time, right? Yes. Okay. All right. So this is my... So we're doing a single murder that happened in California. Then we're doing a kidnapping that happened in California. And then we're doing a serial killer that happened in California. Hell yeah. And all of the ones that I chose are in Laguna Beach because that's where we're going. So, Whoa, Or girl. near there. Look at you. So this one is actually um, kind of something I think you would be into because it's a family annihilator kind of situation. Yes. Okay, but it's I should... not like... It's not like a whole family. It's just two people, but still, it's but family. But it's a family, yeah. yeah. So, um, I shouldn't cheer when we're like, family <laughs> annihilator. Ooh. Like, don't kill your fucking family. Please don't. <laughs> but we do think it's, it's a little interesting. <laughs> so uh, Matthew Bryson McDonald was, a, was the 34-year-old son of Megan Hampton. And her middle name is, I think it's Estes. I don't know. E-S-T-E-S. But that's my best guess, Estes. Okay. Um, she was 61 and they lived together in Laguna Beach in a trailer park called, I think, Laguna Beach Mobile Home Park or something. I had it written down. 
But I think that's what it was called. It was something simple like Laguna Beach Mobile Home Park or something like that. They lived together there. Um, and Megan went to church every Sunday. So um, I think every Sunday and Wednesday. But she went to church frequently with her best friend. And so her best friend came to the house uh, to take her to a church service. Uh, and she found her body and called 911. Uh, just before Megan was found, neighbors had told police that Matthew was behaving erratically and nervously. Um, and Megan was actually the caregiver to Matthew, who was a catatonic schizophrenic, um, or had, no, he has catatonic schizophrenia and requires direction to maintain consistent grooming habits and requiring assistance and preparation of meals. And he's unable to drive. So like he was fully reliant on her. Okay. Um, and I guess he just lost it and ended up killing her. Damn. Yeah. So that was um, in Laguna Beach, and it was kind of just like a crime of passion, it sounds like, but also it sounded like he was very mentally deceived. Yeah, those ones are hard because, um, like, you can't, like, it's not that person's fault. Like, if you have, like, some sort of mental break or if you have, like, whatever, it's just, I don't know, that's hard. I mean, it is their fault, but it's, like, not in some way, too. Like, it's, like, pleading insanity kind of thing. And the thing that sucks is, like, she was always known as, like, a devoted mother and, like, always constantly helping him out, and then he just lost it, and, and it's, like, all the, all the articles are, like, when a good son goes bad, and, (laughs) you can probably hear her snorting and dragging (laughs) her feet through the, (laughs) oh, you'll definitely hear that. I picked the Menendez brothers for my murder, and I got all my info from biography.com. So on August 20th, 1989, Jose and Kitty Menendez were shot to death in their Beverly Hills home. And from the outside, the family seemed like the perfect model of the American dream. So Jose was a Cuban immigrant who literally went from living in his cousin's attic to living on an exclusive block in Beverly Hills as an entertainment exec. Um, they had two sons, Lyle, who was 21, and Eric, who was 18. Both of them were, like, really good tennis players. Um, so Lyle was a star player at Princeton, and Eric was nationally ranked. Um, so, yeah, they were tennis players. <laughs> okay, so both of the boys started to get in trouble. So Eric was getting in trouble for burglaries in the area, and then Lyle was suspended from Princeton for plagiarism. Um, And then when the murder happened, so on August 20th, it was so brutal that the police thought that it was a mob hit um, because Jose and Kitty were literally unrecognizable because of 15 shotgun rounds. It's crazy to me that it's shotgun because they probably had something like birdshot in there or something like that that explodes and it's like getting shot like five times with one shot so essentially they got shot like a million times yes like 15 times five whatever the fuck that is i can't do simple math so i I was like i was trying to do math in my head i was like okay i can do this i can do this and then i i think it's 75 close enough sounds right 
<laughs> I don't know. <laughs> okay, so when the the night that their parents were shot, the two brothers claimed that they had left to go to a movie, but then had to go back to the house to get Eric's ID. And when they got back to the house, they found their parents dead. They called the police and then acted like they were expected to. So, like, really distraught that their parents were dead. So they were good actors, probably, because they lived in... Uh, Yeah. Because their dad was an entertainment exec. So, like, they knew what to do. They learned all this (laughs) from his little friends that were on TV shows and shit. Yes, exactly. Mm Mm-hmm. So at his death, Jose was worth $14 million, which in 1989 was more than it is now, isn't it? Yeah, it has to be. Because they were selling cigarettes for like 99 cents a pack. (laughs) This is true. So um, within six months of their death, the two brothers had spent a total of $700,000 of their inheritance. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Is that including admission to Princeton, though? I don't think so. that's a solid half of it right there. I mean... <laughs> Like, that's not that crazy. I don't know. I kind of... It. They didn't say anything about him returning to Princeton. So he's like, fuck this tennis pro life. I just killed my dad. I'm about to blow all this money. Hell yeah. No one thinks I did it. This is great. Yeah. So Eric, the younger one who had been seeing, had been seeing a therapist, um, and he eventually confessed to his therapist, a Dr. Jerome Oziel, O-Z-I-E-L. Oziel. So he told his mistress about it. Which is, <laughs> so there are a lot of things wrong in this story, but like, like that's like all a, therapists? that's a HIPAA with- violation for sure. With why are all therapists <laughs> totally fucked in the head? Like, do you have to be fucked in the head to be a therapist? I don't think so. Because it seems like there's so many stories where like the therapist is like, I, if you have a mistress, you're fucked in the head. Come on. I and I mean that for every single person that has a mistress. If you have a mistress, you're fucked in the head. <laughs> I don't give a fuck if I offend you. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, She's super serious as well. Because, if you could see her face right now, she is the most serious. <laughs> and then he's out here like being a therapist. Like he's totally in control of his life. His life is fine. But then low-key telling us, his mistress like hey girl on the side by the way this guy i'm <laughs> providing care for i'm gonna tell you murdered his, his parents secrets. yeah and his mistress was like bet i'm about to make so much money off this well oh no so nothing happened oh damn it <laughs> okay so that was like that was a thing that happened and then that was it so then apparently the therapist Got both Eric and Lyle on tape confessing to the m- murders. Oh, so he was like, I'm about to make so much money off this shit. Oh, wait a minute. So this is what happens when you take notes and then like you don't review your notes before you record your podcast episode. Okay, so he got them on tape confessing to the murders. But then his mistress went to the police after she was attacked by Dr. Ozio. Fucked in the head? Again? Yeah, so he's like, a you know abusing his mistress my point yeah yeah, yeah. 
Um, so she went to the police and told the Beverly Hills police about the Menendez brothers, and then both Lyle and Eric were arrested. Dun, dun, dun. That's totally fucking. You knew that before. I know. And you like, didn't tell anyone. It's like it, it seems weird because you think that if you were told about a murder happening and a high fucking profile murder, right? I don't care who I'm having sex with. Yeah, they're going to jail immediately because uh, again, yeah. fucked in the head. Okay, that'd be like if I found out that, like, if I found out that you fucking murdered someone, I'd be like, I'm so sorry. Like, I know I'm so sorry, Cherokee, but I have to tell someone about this. And I'm going to do it on the podcast episode. Yeah, I'm not going to go directly to the police. I'm going to record a podcast episode about it. it. And then we'll tell the police. Yeah. So it took two years of legal proceedings to determine if the confession tapes were admissible, admissible because of doctor patient confidentiality. And they were deemed admissible. Okay, good deal. So the trial started in 1993 and was like a national sensation. So because the two brothers had already confessed, they the um they they claimed that their dad Jose was emotionally abusive and that he had been molesting them since childhood. So their lawyer Leslie Abramson claimed that it was self-defense. And then the defense also portrayed the mom, Kitty, as an alcoholic and a drug addict. So the trial lasted four and a half months, ended in two hung juries, and they had a second trial in 1995. Um, So it wasn't as sensational. The judge did not allow reporters in the courtroom. Thank God. And then this time their lawyer claimed that their therapist had manipulated them into confessing. But it didn't work. They were both convicted of first-degree murder in 1996 and sent to separate prisons. However, that is not where this story ends. Damn it. It never ends on a good note. So there have been movies and TV shows and everything about these two brothers because people are fascinated by this case. And then both brothers got married while in prison, Eric married a pen pal in 1999 named Tammy. I can't pronounce her last name, so we're just going to say Tammy. Well, Tammy's a crazy bitch. She's like, oh, you murdered your fucking parents? Let's. Okay, that happens all the time, though. I know. Where, like, you have, like, loony people Ugh. writing in to fucking murderers and serial I love killers. Jeffrey Dahmer, even though he's clearly. Yay. <laughs> like a psychopath. Why do you even need that? People are crazy. Yeah, people are fucking insane. Um, and then Lyle was actually married twice. So his first wife was named Anna, but they got divorced because he was writing to other women and she oh, found out. Oh, God. How do you cheat in prison? How do you cheat in prison? <laughs> well, he got it down. Psychopath. Don't even fucking worry. Mistresses mean you are <laughs> fucked in the head. <laughs> And then he got married again to a woman named Rebecca in 2003. And based on what I read, they are still married. Oh, good for Rebecca. They're you found your living one. Living happily ever after. You found your one. <laughs> Look at you. So it's a yeah. rarity. So, but this case is like, so I'd heard about the Menendez brothers before because they like pop up in like 
any true crime thing, but I had never actually looked into their murders. Mm -hmm. And then I was excitedly telling my dad about this episode that I thought we had recorded already and like it had been released, but then I realized it hadn't been when we sat down to record this episode. But I was like, dad, have you ever heard about these guys? And he was like, Yes, I did. Those were the two brothers in California that claimed that their dad was abusing them. And I was like, yes, dad. Your dad's the real MVP. I know. My dad's a little bit of a true crime fanatic over here, and I didn't even know. (laughs) Well, that was around about the same time as, like, O.J. Simpson, right? I don't know when O.J. was, but that was right around when I was born, because I was born in 91. And I think O.J. was sometime mid-90s. I'm about to look it up. Yeah, I don't know when OJ was, you know, in trouble for his stuff. So, yeah, that is my California murder. 92. 92. Oh, yeah, so it's like literally the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that might have been why the second time around when the, there wasn't as much publicity because it was like, I mean, OJ was taking all the thunder there, I'm sure. Yeah, well, also, I mean, like, I find it crazy. Like, I get wanting to let reporters report on shit, but, like, when you have a really high-profile case like that, yeah, it's, like, better, be. too. Weren't, weren't, wasn't the OJ, the jury on the OJ trial, weren't they, like, sequestered? So, like, they had no contact with the outside world, and it was a fucking long trial. I think that they can do that for high-profile cases, so it makes sense because they need the jury to be unbiased and they can't let them... But isn't the jury then slightly biased because the people, only people that can afford to take time off like that from work either don't work in the first place or can afford it. I think it it works like that. I think they have to take like an FMLA type thing. You don't have to. So they asked, so I was, um, I got my little jury summons for when we were living. I forget where we were living, but it was in Ann Arbor. And during jury selection, they, like, you could say, like, hey, I can't, like, this would be too much of a financial hardship for me to sit on this jury because they do give you some money, but it's, like, 20 bucks a day. Oh. So you can say that it's too much of a financial hardship or, like, if you're a single parent and you whatever, like, you don't have childcare, like, they'll take all of that into consideration because they're not going to want to seat someone. Like, the lawyers aren't going to want to seat someone that's on a jury anyway if they're like, I just want to get the fuck out of here. Right, because they'll just go with whatever whatever. popular because they want to leave. I think. I want to be in a jury. Okay, it was really fucking cool. I was so excited. I wish it had lasted longer. It was like a really, it was a really fucked up case that I sat on. It was a um, uncle who had molested his niece. Ew. Yeah, it was like a, it was, it was a really disgusting one. Did he get in prison time? Yeah. Okay, good. I mean, I don't know what he was sentenced to, but we found him guilty. Good. Um, and the other people in the jury though were like, some of the people were fucking insane. So, yeah. So, there we go. So, that is part one of our three-part California series. Yeah. Dun-dun-dun. Okay, bye. Bye. Join us every other Saturday and on Instagram at Felony Femme Podcast. In the Facebook group at Felony Femme Podcast. Uh, goodbye.